This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. They've uh, they've been pretty well behaved lately, so we're, you know we're being nice to them. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Lauren. She's finally come back from her overseas trips. How are you? I am very well. Happy Father's Day, Dr. Shane. Oh, thank you. I, I actually haven't just remembered just then I had to ring my dad. So. <laughs> or, happy or, Father's Day, Dad. Or as I like to call it, Happy Paternal Vertical Chromosomal Transfer Day. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Crystal. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Oh, you've got some issues, haven't you? <laughs> oh, come on. Any excuse to nerd it up. Nerd it up. Bring out yeah. the geek. Come on, there's lots of geeky dads out there. Yeah. yeah. They love there, it. There are. There are. I was, yeah, Father's Day this morning, I, I was just hoping for a little bit more sleep, actually, because I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I went to, I went to a trivia night last night, um, a fundraiser for, um, for cancer, and it was very good. It was fun. It was great fun. But, you know, there wasn't one science question there for the whole night. Now, luckily, oh. my knowledge of 80s films and TV shows was pretty, pretty extraordinary. Um, but a colleague of mine sitting next to me, we both, I said, you know, don't worry, Ian, sooner or later, there will be an environment question. <laughs> bum, bum. No, <laughs> there was that thing. We were a bit devastated. I was at a trivia night one night and they asked about the, um, the range of color, like wavelengths of visible light. And I was like, oh, I've got this in the bag. I got it wrong. Oh. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> it may have been the, like, you know, four alcoholic drinks I'd had before. <laughs> oh, well, you know, most of the people at my table had, I have to say, copious amounts of, um, alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's the and only way to get through a trivia. Well, we got I better totally. as we went along. We were blitzing it towards <laughs> the end because there's no inhibitions. You know? That's so, it. The, the, the recall's so good. Mm-hmm, you know. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, don't try that at home, folks. Let's get into some science news. Dr. Lauren, what have you got for us? Well, this morning I'm actually going to prove my husband right, which I always don't like doing, especially on public radio, but he was right in one degree. Uh, and that is about <laughs> children growing up on farms are actually less likely to have allergies and asthma. And he's always actually said this, and I didn't ever really look think much of it, but it actually is true. So kids that are grow, grow up on a farm are much less likely to have asthma and respiratory illness. And up until recently, we didn't really know why. And obviously it's a big deal. So, you know, in America, for example, there's about 6 million American children that have asthma mm-hmm. and, and allergies and yeah, they can be obviously life-threatening. And so in this particular study that was published in Science on Friday... They've looked at why it actually is that if you grow up on a farm, you're protected from some of these things. And what they've found is it's actually to do with bacterial endotoxins. So that's the the bits of the bacteria that when the bacteria are dying. And what they've found is that these endotoxins actually affect the cells in your lung through um, a molecule called A20. Now, the way that this works is that when you're a small child and you're running around the the different farm buildings, those endotoxins obviously get breathed in and they cause a a protective response. They cause this A20 molecule to to increase and it actually changes the human lung cells. So it's not actually changing, you know, proteins or anything like that. In particular, it's actually changing the way the cells respond. That then in your future life means that the cells are less responsive to other forms of dust, so you're less likely to have allergies and asthma. So it, it actually was a really lovely study because they looked at it in, in mice. They then looked at it in mice that didn't have this particular A20 molecule and they showed that those mice, you know, developed asthma and allergies even if they were in a, in a dusty environment. And then they went on and looked at it in 2,000 children that grew up on farms and they found that the children that had a genetic defect that meant they didn't have the A20 molecule, uh, they then could still get asthma and allergies. So basically, you know, they found that the molecule, the molecular reason for this, this 
you know, protection. Wow. So it's pretty cool. Uh, it's, um, they, they sort of have you know, qualified it in the paper by saying this is not necessarily the whole story. Uh, obviously, breathing in parts of dust and things like that you know, is part of the reason, but it also might have to do with the things that you ingest. So it might be to do with gut bacteria. It might also have other, other aspects as well. But it does look like if you're, you know, below the age of three, if you're exposed to farm dusty environments, it's a, it's a good thing. This could be science that supports one of my snake oil salesman schemes. I'm thinking <laughs> of hatching. No, yeah. I was thinking of buying a farm yeah. and saying to all pregnant women, come up, you know, do some farming and you'll be healthier. <laughs> Because there's a lot, of, there's a lot of information going around about this yeah. sort of stuff at the moment. And, you know, some of it's real, some mm-hmm. of it's fake, some of it's just being used. Yeah. And I'm going to go with all the fake stuff and buy just a farm and, and just go with it. But <laughs> if there's some science to back it up, it's even I'm all better. even better. You well, know. So in in Europe, they've actually they actually have started having daycare centres that are in farms. Really? Yeah. So, and Is they, that where you they, just chuck them out in the in the paddock? <laughs> just well, go some, you know. We've got the Collingwood Children's Farm. We've yeah, got Bandura uh, Children's mm-hmm, Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. Some local daycare centres have chickens. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm <laughs> serious. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of great ways to get out there and uh, enjoy that farm life in an urban environment. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. And I think the interesting thing for me as well is this thing, this idea that you have to really get them young. So if once yeah. a child's over three, this protective mechanism doesn't actually happen. So yeah. you know, then if you've already developed these issues, then you're going to have a yeah. asthma attack probably. Get them dirty, folks. Get, get them, them dirty. dirty young. Dr. Crystal. I was very excited this week week when my new triple r subscriber card turned oh, yeah, on in the too. mail oh, I got mine in my wallet how too. exciting was yes. that and i stuck my new triple r bumper sticker on the back of the car so uh, i just wanted to say what a great radiothon we had and thank yeah. you to all of our subscribers who subscribe not only to i'm sonic go but to the rest of the sunday show and to the entire station yeah. because it was just so humbling to mm. have that support it was huge you know i do something with my triple r sticker about once every five years that mm. cannot be beat whenever i bought a car usually it has the the cars you know um the company selling the cars sticker at oh, that yeah. point on the back window and so in front of the salesperson before i drive out i always whip out the triple r sticker <laughs> like prepared earlier and stick it over their advertisement <laughs> and they look at you like what the hell are you doing that's our right to have that there and it's like no 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 it's Showing not <laughs> and if, if i had colors. a triple r number plate sort of border i'd put that on too Belle. oh that's a great merch opportunity yeah yeah triple r get on it yep mm-hmm. dave yeah. station manager dave we want those anyway some signs uh yeah why not um <laughs> Do you remember uh, the 2010 Nobel Prize for Physics, uh, Dr. Shane? Can you remember what that was awarded for? 2010. Was mm. it graphene? It was. Bing. Bum, it bum. was graphene. <laughs> graphene, the uh, two-dimensional um, carbon lattice material. Yeah. And, and so uh, there's been a lot of uh, exciting research that's been done on graphene you know, over the last 15 years. But one thing it has inspired are other... Um, two-dimensional molecular lattices mm. made of uh, uh, atoms other than carbon. So as well as graphene, we've kind of got like a whole bunch of cousins. So mm. there's um, silicine, which is made of silicon. Mm. A- any more guesses? Silicon. Silicon, yes, silicine. Yep. Um, phosphorus. Phoene, which is made oh, yeah. of phosphorus atoms. Ah. So does it have to be in that in that particular column in the periodic table? No, because there's um, germanine, which is not made from Germans. It's <laughs> <laughs> spread very thinly. But much, you looked at me when you said that. I, I did chemistry the year twelve. I've got yeah. some vague chemistry knowledge. Well, what element would that would germanine be made of? 
Germanium. Correct. See, this is making up for the lack of science questions at the trivia night. Yeah. <laughs> and so far, I'm two for two. Well, yeah. well, this week, physicists in the US uh, and in China published a paper in Nature Materials um, demonstrating that they may, and it's a bit controversial still, they may have made stanine. Ah. And stanine is a 2D lattice structure made of tin atoms. Wow. Because the atomic um, uh, name for S-E-N. tin... Yes, is, um, is S-E-N. Three for three. Yes. <laughs> Shame. Um, and, and so it's like this honeycomb lattice structure... Of, t- of tin atoms. Actually quite remarkable how they make these things. They're under quite controlled, extreme conditions where they vaporise the tin atoms in a vacuum and then they allow the atoms to kind of waft and drift down onto this uh, supporting surface and then it actually forms this sort of um, honeycomb lattice mm-hmm. of um, at, which is completely flat when you can imagine that they're all in kind of like these hexagonal shapes mm-hmm. all connected together. And the reason why this is exciting is because the um, change in the um, uh, the molecular structure means that this material is predicted to have exotic electric uh, electronic properties that it can um, actually conduct electricity without generating waste heat. Mm. Oh, wow. And that the electrons can move through the edge of the material without colliding with any other atoms or anything else, which if you think about the applications of that... Mm. Well, computer chips. Uh, compu- mm. yeah. and because one of the main it's problems... limiting factor. One of the main mm. limiting factors of making things smaller and smaller and smaller um, can... And, and, and and, and for many things, is the amount of heat mm. that, that is generated mm. and how damaging that can be mm. to um, to quite intricate um, electronic structures. And so if you could actually have a material that could um, transmit electrons you know, as electricity mm. without generating any waste heat, that, that is a phenomenal breakthrough. It's, yeah. it's, it's controversial. It's yet to be shown. They, they think they've made the material. They've yet to demonstrate that any of these properties are actually present. Mm. But all of the um, theoretical phys- physics and all the, all the um, uh, theoretical chemistry suggests that that will that will be the case. So mm-hmm. exciting stuff happening yeah. in the um, materials world. Very mm-hmm. cool. Very cool. Um, now, I thought I would just up you, update you ladies on the um, the latest for the New Horizons spacecraft because, you know, there's a big, you know, awesome time when it went past uh, Pluto and, and, you know, some of the big data um, stuff starting to come back, I think, in the next uh, few weeks. They're starting to, you know, there's a big download starting. So there's a lot of stuff still going on. And it we, takes a while to get all that data back. Well, it's about, I think, six to nine months. It's, it's it's quite a it's quite a protracted period because it's um it's a very slow data feed and and basically they sent through uh, you know a limited amount of stuff and we got that and the spacecraft made it through safely and that you know so fantastic and now you get the the heavy duty stuff coming through. Is there some poor scientist sitting at a screen just watching that little wheel going downloading, <laughs> downloading, downloading, buffering, buffering, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like three percent complete, four percent complete? There could be, but you know, given given the Sort of majesty of this, this I, I would actually do that. <laughs> I would happily be the person who was waiting for that because at least at the end you could go, "Boom, we're there." We're there. <laughs> um, but you know, of course, a lot of questions being asked because um, this craft is not one that goes into orbit around Pluto. Of course, it flies straight past, quite fast, and so the question is, where does it go next? And the the team have actually now decided on the next location. It's an object out in the Kuiper Belt, or the Kuiper Belt, if you prefer, um, with the amazing title, uh, 2014 MU69. <laughs> 
and this was found actually using the Hubble Space Telescope. It took uh, quite some time to locate this object. It's uh, somewhere between 25 and 45 kilometres wide, so, you know, half the size of the city of Melbourne, in a sense, or a little, little, maybe a third. Um, and it's it's in a location which is pretty specific. So basically what we want to look at there is something that's untouched. So if you think of Pluto, one of the amazing things about Pluto is that it's still getting a fair bit of sunlight, and it's big enough, and we know this now, to have geological activity going on. Mm. So if you go and have a look at it, that's not how it looked when the solar system was formed. Mm. It's changed a lot. So what we want to do is look at an object that hasn't changed at all, something that's preserved the original conditions of the formation of the solar system. Now, to get that, you have to, A, have a, an object that's not too big, so it you know, it's not big enough for its own gravity to shift it around and have geological processes. Mm. Um, and B, you want it far enough away from the sun that there isn't um, sort of changes occurring due to due to the sun itself. Mm. So this object seems to fall into that category. And um, yeah, it'll be quite some time before we we get there, of course. But um, we're looking, I think, uh, you know, um, well, yeah months away uh, mm. until they even approve i think nasa still has to approve this and then they start a engine burn uh, probably around november-ish and then off they go so it'll be a little while before we uh, get anything really cool to to look at again but um yeah but it's fascinating it that nasa scientists are sitting around going right team where should we go next yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right well and and the reality is of course because these objects are literally so far out mm. we just don't know um where a lot of them are and we don't even know they exist so as i said it took a long time for hubble to locate an appropriate object in an appropriate area or uh, you know area of space for for the craft to head on to so it's look this is one of the greatest successes i think in modern space exploration this particular mission has been extraordinary and hopefully it'll continue and you know when they move on to that next object it will be fascinating so now we're going to take a break for some music and we will be back in just a moment we're going to be talking to professor michael smart believe it or not about um australian space program so i think this will be kind of cool um we're going to give you a track here and we'll be back in just a moment folks now three triple We do already have our guest on the phone. Professor Michael Smart is the Chair of Hypersonic Propulsion and the Head of the High Shock Group at the School of Mechanical and Mining Engineering at the University of Queensland. Michael, can you hear us? I can. Good morning. Good morning. Now, you are working on something that I was hoping would happen in this country, but, you know, I'm 43 years old and I've been waiting a while. It just doesn't come up. But um, you're looking at the possibility of us starting to have our own sort of satellite launching industry here in Australia. What what has prompted this, this interest? So um, the thing about... Um the future of uh, space systems and and satellites is that um, because of modern electronics, uh, the satellites that uh, that need to be put up in the next twenty years they're all much smaller than they used to be. So mm-hmm. um, in the old days um, and currently, you know, they might want to put up a satellite that weighs ten tons. 
yep. and um, needs a massive rocket, a massive rocket. But nowadays, they, the sorts of satellites that people want to put up to, to do remote sensing or to look at forestry and other things, they, they, they weigh 100 kilograms. So, you know, not 10,000 kilograms, they weigh 100 kilograms. Mm-hmm. And what that means is the rocket that's required is much, much smaller than in the past. And in fact, at the moment, there are really no rockets that have been designed to put satellites of that size uh, into orbit. So, so, what, it's, it's, so sorry, what, what, what's happening at the moment? And presumably, there are some smaller satellites going up at the moment. We hear about, you know, the launch of some of these cube satellites and other things that are, that are happening. How, how are they being put up at the moment? They just being sort of piggybacked on the on the back of some of these very large um, ones going up. Is that what's going on? That's there. That's what happens right now. So they, um, so these small satellite companies, the CubeSat companies, they have to piggyback on either a, a Russian rocket or an American rocket, or like a SpaceX type rocket or a mm-hmm. European one. And the, the problem with that for them is, um, actually, I just went. I went to a conference uh, late last year, and there's a lot of discussion of this. Is that um, they really? Can't, if they if they get a piggyback lift, they really can't control um, the orbit that they go into. Mm, very yeah. specific low orbits that they want to put these small satellites in, which are quite different to the one that they're piggybacking upon. Mm. And that means they can't go into the orbit that they want. And they also have a lot of difficulty um, controlling the schedule. So if they piggyback on a Russian rocket, they basically give over their beautiful um, multi-million dollar satellite to the Russians and then at some point in the future it will get launched and it's very hard to control that. So that's the, that's the problem. You can, you can launch small satellites right now as a piggyback, but there's nothing dedicated to that. Mm. And there's nothing that provides the flexibility to go along with these small satellites. Now, part of the, the very large cost, um, I would have thought, with these, these large launches is a, a fair portion of those rockets are non-usable. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, like uh, 99% right. of the yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so most of it. <laughs> most of it, basically, yes. So if, if we would... It's only the satellite that's used. It's, it's right. All the, the whole rocket system is actually just tossed away right now. Right. I mean, that's an extraordinary waste if you want to if you want to just send something up that's relatively small. So, so what are you guys doing in terms of um, sort of bringing out new technologies to focus just on smaller smaller um, payloads? So, so what we're doing. So, there's an opportunity to develop new technology that's applicable to small satellites, and. One of the issues um, with going smaller is um, the way rockets get their efficiency is by making things really big. So a rocket system, when it gets small, say it was sized to put up 100 kilograms, it's very inefficient. So um, it's a much, much worse system than a big rocket. So it's actually an opportunity to to justify the upfront investment in developing new technology, so reusable technology. And the, the two types of reusability that we're looking at is the first one is the uh, first stage booster, which will be a rocket, and we're looking at trying to, instead of tossing that rocket away once it's done its job, we want to do a controlled re-entry and deploy some wings and a propeller motor, as the case, as our design is, and then fly it back to base. So you would actually get the first stage booster, which is actually can be more than say 60% of your whole mass of your system 
uh, we want to fly that back to base so that it can be refueled again and, and, and you know, launched again later that week, for example. So uh, the, the second bit of yeah, it, yeah, the second bit of reusable technology is the upper stage, and we want to use an air breathing engine called a scramjet, which is something that we have worked on at the University of Queensland for the last 25 years. So that's sort of a uh, slightly further in the future, but um, it's all about trying to um, make this make the system reusable. Professor Smart, it's uh, Dr Crystal here. I just had a question. I mean, obviously, from what you've described, we've, we've got some fantastic new technology and innovation that's happening here in Australia. But what's the, what's the real benefit to Australia for having a system like this here? Like, why would why would we do it here? Um, it, what, what's the kind of the um, benefit to Australia more broadly in terms of the problems that we would be trying to solve? Right, so Australia, in the future, um, Australia is going to depend... Uh, quite significantly on satellite and space technology, um, all, all sorts of for all sorts of things. We all know about weather and communications, but a lot, lots of these new modern satellites, they're all about remote sensing, uh, looking at the temperature of the oceans, looking at forestry. Um, there's lots of things that we're interested in about looking back down at the Earth, um, and they're things that we're going to do regardless of whether Australia would have our own system. Um, so the benefit for Australia to have develop our own system is that we can uh, keep that money and that knowledge or the technology required for that in the country and, you know, give our young people something exciting to work on. Um, but also we can market that uh, technology and that ability to launch satellites to other countries. So it's really, you know, it's one of these high-tech industries. It's a niche industry, but it could take over, you know, from this issue that we have right now where, you know, the mining boom is, has gone away. And, and, and it's a way of, you know, it's, it's sort of the new, it's part of the new economy, I would say. And is it true that Australia is the only country in the OECD that doesn't have a space agency? I'm not sure if that's the case, <laughs> but I know that we don't have one. <laughs> we, well, yeah, it's I'm not close. sure about the, all the other countries, but I know that Australia doesn't have one. They do, there is a group um, within the Australian government um, which is responsible for, for space policy, um, but we don't actually have a dedicated space agency. I wonder if that policy document just is a blank page with a heading on it at the moment. <laughs> there's, there's not, there's no, not a lot. It's not. It, yeah, there, there has been quite a lot of thought um, um, done within government on space policy. Um, but, you know, Australia is, I would say, a fairly conservative um, country. And, um, you know, people in government particularly, they want to know that something is necessary, definitely necessary before they sort of go ahead and do it. There's not a lot of, you know, thinking ahead, well, what are we going to need in 20 years type of thing? That would be my only uh, complaint about the people in government. The people in government are great... Um, they do, they do a great job, um, but I would say they're just slightly conserved, I would say. Mm. So, Michael, whereabouts are we with this? Are you launching sort of scaled-down models of this at the moment, or are we still in the sort of planning and design phase? Well, so the um, there, the different parts are at different levels of development. So this first-stage booster, this flyback booster, um, we're going to do a launch, a subscale version of that, sort of a technology demonstrator of that, uh, in December of this year, hmm. and the the resources for all that have all been um, 
they've sort of been collected within the university and also a, a couple of small uh, companies uh, who are very interested in this. Uh, they've basically put in their own internal funds to, to do this first uh, technology demonstrator. So it's a small-scale thing. It's, a, it's like a... Um, a UAV, or you know, people call them drones, but it's a small aircraft. It doesn't have a pilot, of course. Has a flight computer, and we're going to basically uh, do a launch of um, an aircraft, essentially. And this is basically the uh, flyback booster on, on its way back. So we're going to deploy the wings, um, deploy the propeller motor, uh, do a landing, and just develop all this. Essentially, fl how do you fly? a big cylinder, or a big cigar-shaped thing, which is a rocket, uh, back to base. And that's what we're going to do uh, in December. Mm. And, and, so, and, hope, and so we're going to learn a lot from that. And then from that, hopefully, um, we'll, we'll, um, we have some people that we've been talking to about funding, um, and hopefully uh, things will go from there. Well, look, it sounds um, sounds great. I, I think it's uh, a really good thing for Australia to get into this industry, and we know now that a lot of countries are involved in in, in the space industry as as well as many commercial companies that have now um, gotten involved as well. And, and we've seen the, the reliance of NASA on some of those different countries and, and companies has gone, you know, really gone up over the over recent years. Michael, thanks so much for talking to us, and, and we hope that your uh, test flight in, in December goes well. You have to let us know how how it travels thanks very much and it's great to talk to you that was professor michael smart who's the chair of hypersonic propulsion and the head of the high shot group at the school of mechanical and mining engineering at the university of queensland i have to say i'm just wondering whether you know the university of queensland soon will change its sort of motto to you know university of queensland we launch rockets. <laughs> I mean, they're the only university in Australia who'd be able to make that claim. I think it's uh, it's pretty cool stuff. It's, a, it? it's really cool, and I and you do wish that our nation had a bit of a more bold vision for what our future would look like, because this is an, a, really an industry where Australia has huge amounts of advantages. Yeah. We could be making so much more of. We have lots of places to launch from. We're also, you know, a, a southern hemisphere launch site, mm. which has to have some advantages and, and so forth. But mm. but as as Michael rightly pointed out, piggybacking things on top of other people's you know sort of like you know getting on the train to a place you don't really want to go to mm. but you know get you kind of in the right direction that's fine but um, yeah and i think it also mm. buys us a seat at the international table Absolutely. like if we had our own space agency then we could be able to coordinate with other you know like countries, countries yeah. you know and and be part of that global kind of conversation yeah. i just i just think that i wish australia would just you know get on with it and uh, be a bigger part of the 21st century <laughs> a part of the 21st bigger, century <laughs> Indeed. Now, folks, uh, we do have a series of giveaways today, which I'm about to hand over to uh, Liv to my left. We have four double passes to the Tim Flannery Live in Conversation session we will be having next Sunday during Einstein and Gogo. It will be from 11 a.m. If you uh, haven't worked it out, the show starts at 11, so the doors open up at 10.30. You need to be a subscriber if you would. I'm not even going to give the phone number out because a number of people have already called. Uh, Liv's going to wander out and answer the phones for us so um, if you're on the phone please uh, hang on until she gets to you we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today three triple ah. 
listening to 3 Blah. This is Einstein and Gogo. It's a science program, and we have another guest on the phone now. We have Sol Cunningham, who is a pollination researcher from CSIRO Agriculture, Health and Biosecurity, Food and Nutrition. Sol, can you hear us? I can. Now, you're doing some very interesting work at the moment, which is in a critical area, not just for us here in Australia, but all over the world, and that involves some of the issues faced by our honeybees. Um, tell me a bit about this new global initiative for honeybee health that you guys are launching. For many years now we've been doing research on crop pollination, trying to understand the role of bees in helping us produce food. Mm-hmm. And, and in that work we're, we're discovering essentially that, that the role for bees as pollinators is greater than people have really realised. But at the same time, around the world there's a realisation that we're actually, we as in producers of food, are struggling to get enough uh, bees and other wild pollinators into our agriculture. Mm-hmm. And there's problems both with the free-living wild bees and also with the many tiny bees that we turn to when we don't get enough of the wild ones. Yep. So what we're seeing is, is uh, uh, a decline in numbers in different parts of the world. Not too bad in Australia, but we can see these issues in the horizon and we're, we're trying to do some work to avoid having the same problems here. Okay. And, and in terms of um, this, this initiative, what, what exactly does that mean? I mean, this is a very well-known problem, pretty much. Not that people understand the reasoning behind it, but it's, it's fairly well-known, isn't it? That's right. It's the idea that there's bee declines is well-known. What's not well-known is, is the cause. Mm. Um, and, in fact, I guess it's a growing view that, um, like most complicated problems, there's not a single cause anyway. But we've got a few reasons to think that Australia is in a is in a key position to help with the problem. And one of the things is that we, we're currently still free of one particular bee disease, which is probably at the root of this problem. So one of the reasons why Australian bees are healthier than Australian honeybees, I should say, than bees in America, for example, is we don't have this disease. And that lets us do research here that you can't do elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think Australia is important there. And then we've also got some technology and some good scientists in Australia that allow us to do some experiments that aren't being done elsewhere in the world. Yep. Now, my, my understanding is you guys are going to be uh, connecting up some very small, it's called a micro sensors that will actually sort of work like little black boxes in a sense on the bees and follow them around, track them and see when their behaviour is abnormal. In there. Is that right? But yeah, so that's one of the things we're doing. So at the moment, what the sensors tell you is is when the bees are coming and going from the hive. Right? So if you, um, the, the important thing to think about here is that when you're dealing with bees, it's not what happens to the individual that matters, it's what happens to the whole colony, those thousands and thousands mm. of individuals. So if you want to understand a decline, you actually have to look at the colony level. So we tag hundreds of individuals, and then you get this data, coming and going data from the sensors. It's a bit like, a, like an e-tag on your car when you go down the tollway, mm-hmm. so it's just going blip every time they go. So the initial data we get is who left, when, and when did they come back, or importantly, did they come back? You know, some some individuals aren't going to come back, and that starts to give you a real picture of the dynamic of the hive. And we know from some other work that it's that dynamic, the comings and goings, and the who's not coming back, that uh, can start to predict problems for the hive before they occur. So as Dr. Lauren here, I'm really intrigued by this idea of these microsensors. How do you actually attach them to the bees so that they don't fall off when they fly around? Well, the microsensor is an incredibly sophisticated bit of technology. Attaching it to the bee is not. <laughs> <laughs> is a blob of superglue. <laughs> 
<laughs> Great. And stick it on. <laughs> so that sounds that, like a, it's it. a one-way deal. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, you have to um, be careful with your fingers. <laughs> so it's Dr. Crystal here. Um, what G'day. do you do with all the data? Like, you must get such an incredible amount of information back from all these microsensors. Um, how, is the, how is that data handled to, to turn it into useful information? Well, in a way, that's the most interesting part of the science. The technology is cool, but the, but the real exciting thing is how do you interpret it. And there are researchers around the world who already model this kind of data, you know, the, the foraging rats and, um, and the comings and goings kind of data. So, it, look, on some level, we don't know all the ways we're going to handle it, but we do know some of the ways we're going to handle it, and a lot of the, the key research will be on learning new ways of getting an insight there. Look, to give a bit, a bit more of an answer, you have to have a model of how hives grow and shrink because that's really what we're trying to get at, an existing model based on the biology of the bees, which you probably know is a pretty complicated little system they've got. So you have a basic model for what should happen and then you go and look at what's really happening with your bees and uh, try and use it to make projections. Hmm. So this um, is obviously an international problem. It, is there sort of funding coming in to support our work here in Australia from international governments given how you know the critical situation is how how critical the situation is over there somewhat worse than it is here in australia are you getting support from internationals we're getting um support from international uh organizations not Mm -hmm. necessarily governments okay so there are some technology partners in this in this project who are helping with the development of the technology and they're international companies uh, but international governments, uh, you know, I guess, look, to be frank, we haven't really asked them because most of these international governments are uh, looking at their own initiatives within country. But I think the best way to think about it is to have a collaboration. You don't necessarily have to have everyone giving you money. It's about, it's more about data sharing and uh, and working together and, and comparing what you're seeing in different countries. Mm. Now, we, we hear a lot about the, the die-off of certain bee colonies and so forth, but I would have to imagine, I mean, this is your area of expertise, but I would have to imagine that somewhere before that occurs, there must be a reduction in the sort of ability of those bees to do pollination in an effective way. Is is there sort of an early warning sign that the, the bees are in trouble as a result of... Yeah, yeah. Look, that's exactly where this is going. Um, so, so the the death of bees or the collapse of a colony is obviously the end point of, mm. of something that's been going on for a little while. Um, and uh, we do know from some uh, research by colleagues at uh, Macquarie University that um, that you can see. Uh, uh, when foragers cross a threshold of, of, of failing to come back, if you like, so foragers are out there looking for food, but they don't all come back. At some point, the, the, the hive tries to make more foragers and more foragers to make up for the ones that are lost, and that sends, sends the hive in a direction that's hard to come back from. So um, we've already got an inkling of what that should look like, and there's some data to support that idea, but that's what we really need to know more about. And I guess the other thing is, if you think about this from the, the grower's point of view, the person who's trying to grow a crop and get pollination, is not only do they want the hives to 
stay alive, but they just really want them to do a good job, right? Mm. <laughs> so you mm. want these out there collecting the right way. And that's, that's one of the other research areas we've been working with is how do you get the best out of a hive regardless of the, of the health of that hive. And, and when, we, when we look at uh, the Australian situation, where, as you mentioned, there's a lot of just, um, you know, bees out there doing their thing as opposed to these, these commercial bee colonies that have, I think they're trucked around in some cases and, and, and taken, you know, especially in the US, they, they drive these big trucks of them around and just put them in various locations to do the job in orchards and so forth. Is there an advantage in these bees being in a sort of mat- natural habitat? I mean, they have presumably no one's scooping the, the honey out of their hives and all the goodness that it includes and so forth. Are there advantages in, in those bees being under those conditions? Oh, well, look, there's one really, really big advantage, and that is they're for free. Right? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. maintain, you can maintain a healthy community of wild bees and other pollinating insects in the landscape. That's the best possible thing from a grower's point of view, because those mm. bees will do the job without you paying anything. To give you a sense, you, you commented on bees being trucked around the landscape. Um, it's not just America. We do that in Australia. Right. To give you a sense of the scale of it, the almond industry, which is one of Australia's biggest horticultural industries nowadays, horticultural export industries we uh, I, I do some work with them and we need 180,000 hives to support pollination for the couple of weeks that almonds are flowering wow. and those 180,000 hives are of course trucked from all over eastern Australia so we're doing the same thing we're moving these long distances and in that case the way to think of it is the almonds really need pollination the wild pollinators are not there in sufficient number to, to pollinate the kinds of you know, the sizes of orchards we have. We have orchards that are many kilometres across. Mm. And so from a grower's point of view, although you like that free pollination, you can't trust to it, if you like. You can't afford to just, you know, um, hope it's going to happen. So so you pay a beekeeper. So the way I think of it if across agriculture in general is we really need to be doing both things. We need to be really protecting the wild pollinators that provide a free service, which we also know when it's when it's present is a better service than, than you can get from a single pollinator. Yep. But then you have to have the insurance policy for these crops that really need pollination of managed honeybees, the bees that you bring on a truck in a box. Mm. So in a perfect world, you wouldn't use them because then you'd be saving money. And in any case, a single species can never do the job that, you know, 30 species can do. But... Uh, it's still a critical uh, part of agriculture to be able to provide them. Mm. Well, look, so it's super interesting stuff, and I hope your uh, micro sensors give you the sort of data we need to to pull back from the brink that we're sort of on with some of these um, colony collapses around the world. And no doubt the Australian science here will prove extremely useful internationally. So uh, good luck with the work, and thanks for talking to us today. It's been a pleasure. Sol Cunningham is from CSIRO Agriculture, Health and Biosecurity, Food and Nutrition, and he's a pollination researcher there and um, based up north, of course. We are going to take a break with some uh, music, and we'll be back in a moment. We have our third guest who won a little competition this week, and uh, we're pretty excited about it, so hang in there. Three, triple, Yeah. You want to be part of that audience? Go to the Triple R website. And make sure you've subscribed, folks. You can still do that, by the way. If you wish, get on the web and subscribe to the station if you haven't done so and support independent science and radio. Dr. Crystal, are you okay? I understand you just read a tweet from the Minerals Council of Australia or someone who's hacked their account to say... Apparently the Minerals Council of Australia (laughs) have just launched a new campaign. Coal 
it's an amazing thing. If it's left in the ground. <laughs> yeah. They, I, I just can't. I mean, do you know what's amazing about coal? It's responsible for over 800,000 premature deaths per year. That's what's amazing about coal. Maybe that's their, like, byline. This is, yeah, this is, that's the next part of the ad mm, that's coming out. Yeah, you just got to wait for the rest of the ad. Yeah, surely this is a parody account gone wrong. Someone's, someone's hacked the account. They must have Coal. If not, it's an amazing thing. If not, we we're not happy about that because coal should be left in the ground, folks. Um, anyway, we have a guest who's uh, patiently waiting here in the studio. Eamon not, Faye. Not talking about coal. Not talking about coal. <laughs> Eamon Faye is from the Centre for Eye Research Australia and the University of Melbourne. And I met Eamon earlier in the week when he was uh, very very talented in the University of Melbourne's grand final of the three minute thesis contest, and he came first. Congratulations and welcome, Eamon. Thanks very much and thanks for having me. Look, it's great to have you in here. And uh, you know Dr. Lauren, of course. Uh, hopefully she doesn't give you too much grief down at the Centre for Eye Research. Um, you're working on glaucoma mm-hmm. as, a, as a problem, but on early detection. First of all, give us a bit of an idea of what's happening in the eye in glaucoma. What's, what's going on for patients? Okay, so... Um, I spoke a little bit about this in, in my speech earlier in the, in the week in the competition, but basically in glaucoma, the traditional view is that, that optic nerve cells, so the, the nerve cells that make up the optic nerve, um, end up dying off, and basically that's responsible for, for vision loss in glaucoma. And um, I suppose the thing about glaucoma is that once vision is lost, um, it's 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 quite difficult to uh, to slow the progression of the disease, and uh, also um, it's it's quite difficult to diagnose the disease. And it's, mm. it's estimated that about fifty um, percent of people with glaucoma are actually actually undiagnosed. Right. So the figure for Australia is about three hundred thousand people with glaucoma, and again, half of them probably don't know then they, they actually have the disease now, now what puts you sort of in a risk group for glaucoma is there sort of um mitigating factors that say you know you know if i drink too much or i smoke too much or, or whatever i mean what what sorts of things say i've got a high risk for for getting this condition there's a whole load of of, of risk factors but the two key things um number one is age so um over the age of 80 about one in eight people have glaucoma okay and um, the other thing is is pressure in the eye um so people with high pressure in the eye can get glaucoma but they can also not get glaucoma and that's one of the the mysteries of glaucoma that it doesn't always have to involve high pressure in the eye and in fact they they estimate that to be about about 50% of cases are associated with, with high pressure in the eye. Yeah, so is that why, I, I, when I've been to an optometrist, and they don't go to Dr. Lauren because she giggles when she's doing the tests, and I find that a bit off-putting, um, <laughs> they, they do that little puff of air, is, is that yeah. what they're testing for there? That's what they're testing for, they're testing for eye pressure, and um, I mean, it's a useful way to screen for, for the disease, hmm. um, because, you know, you can pick up quite a high proportion of people if they if they do have high, high eye pressure, but again, there's that, there's that other half of people who may not have high eye pressure um, and and that's really where where our research is is focusing on um, looking at uh, new ways to detect these optic nerve cells when they're in a really early stage of dysfunction um, and um, hopefully to, to to kind of improve our detection mm. strategies mm. so how do we do that how do we how do we get get to the early detection yeah so I suppose one of the, the privileges that I'm involved in at the moment is being able to work in um, in, a, in a research environment um, where I'm basically doing the basic science side of things. So mm-hmm. um, I'm actually working on, on, on mouse retina and looking at individual optic nerve cells in these mouse retina. And 
the other side of the coin then is the clinical research and um, this is all, all kind of run by, by one of my main supervisors, Professor Jonathan Crowston and so a lot of the, the basic science stuff, we're, we're taking clues from that and applying it into the, into the clinical research and just to, to kind of nail down on, on one of the specific things which, which really gets me kind of excited is, is the, the methodology that I'm using is called patch clamping um, and you may or may not have ever heard of that before but um, basically what it involves is you use a microscopic glass electrode and um, you actually um, pierce into uh, an individual nerve cell so you can imagine how uh, that's at a, a really Small. kind of fine level. Um, involves a lot of uh, sophisticated machinery to, to kind of uh, get get to that uh, level of precision. And then once you're kind of inside the, the nerve cell, you can then measure electrical activity and you can inject in current and look at how, how the cell responds electrically. And that's one of the main ways that, that, that I've been um, investigating uh, these optic nerve cells uh, to try and um, work out really what, um, what the differences are between um, healthy um, injured um, ganglion cells um, to, to try and work out whether there's uh, anything that we can see that can aid detection and then looking at as well as injured uh, cells to look at recovered cells as well to see what's responsible perhaps for that recovery process mm. and um, again I spoke about this in, in, in the talk but one of the things that um, we're beginning to see um, is that um, Cells, when they're at a very early stage of dysfunction, have difficulties in, in firing signal. Now, these optic nerve cells fire signal using action potentials. And that's kind of this, uh, the, this, this all or nothing event that occurs in, in nerve cells and, and is responsible for getting that visual information from the eye along the optic nerve and, and to the brain. And so that, that makes quite a bit of sense. And, uh, when they're recovered then they can actually regain the ability to fire these action potentials and 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 that's that's very interesting in itself as well and again you know looking at that basic science and then applying it in the clinic using um, electrophysiological techniques. Um, one of the main uh, investigations that we use is called the electroretinogram and, and that's a bit like a, a, an ECG for an eye. Hmm, you know, they use right. the ECG in the heart so, so it's kind of measuring global electrical activity. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting stuff and you know, I've, I've been absolutely privileged to be a part of the, the, the whole thing. Yeah, look, it, it sounds fascinating, and it's certainly, as you say, it's a, it's an area that affects such a large number of people, and especially as our population is living longer and wanting to stay healthy into into older age, um, we need to get on top of this. And uh, I guess the little puff of air will have to be replaced with something else. Lauren tries to say that she's a couple of times she's walked up to me and blown in my eye, and <laughs> oh, yeah. what, know what she's up to. Um, but th- this this sounds really good. Well, good luck with the work, and congratulations once again on winning the competition during nice. the week. And I guess you're off to the next stage of that competition. Now is that the Trans yeah. Tasman part? The Trans Tasman yeah. uh, part of it is on October second, yep. um, in the University of Queensland, and um, actually before that we'll be filming um, a, um, a a clip for the U twenty one competition. Right. So that's 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 online, and people vote for what which videos uh, that that, yep. they, that they like the most. And I got to thank you as well, Shane, for for doing the MCing on the on the day for the three minute thesis. You did a fantastic job. Didn't make it up, mate. Thanks. It's always good when it goes down well. Well, look, uh, good luck. Uh, you know, whip those guys up in Queensland. Don't worry about them. There's no I'll, do my, I'll do my best. Do, do it for Victoria. Eamon Faye from the Centre for Eye Research Australia and the University of Melbourne. Thanks for chatting.
talking to us today. Thanks a lot. We're pretty much out of time. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much for coming in today. Good to see you. Always a pleasure. And you'll be part of my little team next week to talk to Tim Flannery about his new book and I'm all things climate. I am very excited. Come along and join us in the yep. Triple R studio if you if, can. If, if you've got tickets. If you've got tickets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to get that. Yeah, and, but they're giving them away, so listen out for yeah, some yeah. more giveaways. Yeah. And go to the website. Uh, there's some information there, I think, on how to get your hands on them. Dr. Lauren, thanks so much. Good to see you back in country. It's been very good to be back. You're going to be back for a couple of weeks? Or? Yeah, a couple of weeks. I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll listen next weekend. That's what I'm going to be doing. Indeed. Thank you to Liv for doing our Twitter feed and send my regards to the uh, Minerals Council of Australia. Tell them how much I'm enjoying their tweets about coal. Coal is amazing. Coal is amazing. <laughs> get yourself some coal. It's called briquettes. It causes you know? <laughs> Like the Hazelwood fire. Oh, I mean, that, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, climate change. Amazing. 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 We better hand over to Edith. I'm Dr. Shane. It's been a pleasure presenting to you again today, folks, and we'll talk to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks for listening to 3 R. This has been a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.